You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Coming up next on SpyCast. I was at home, um, but had not been sleeping well uh, for quite some time before that, because I think we felt our intelligence was really solid, certainly by the point that the war began, uh, that it was imminent. And I think I got into the office less than 30 minutes after that. Uh, We had some pretty intense meetings right away, as you can imagine, uh, for me to update the Secretary General, the Chair of the Military Committee, some other key officials, my my key leadership colleagues on things. And then we started our day. Uh, But I'm not going to pretend I I still wasn't shocked. Uh, It's one thing to know it's coming, but it really is another to see missiles raining down on a city that I had only visited at that point just a few weeks before. David Cattler is NATO's Assistant Secretary General for Intelligence and Security. Since leaving Long Island, New York, as a 17-year-old boy to go to the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, David has had all manner of interesting jobs. For example, he has chaired the National Intelligence Management Council, been Deputy Assistant to the President for Regional Affairs, and Deputy Director for Intelligence in the Office of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He began his career as a naval surface warfare officer, serving aboard two cruisers, and then transitioned to the Office of Naval Intelligence. He is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, the National Intelligence University, and the U.S. Naval War College. In this episode, we discuss NATO and intelligence, how the alliance is responding to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, disrupting Russian denial and deception operations, NATO expansion and the addition of new intelligence services, and how NATO is adapting to evolving and disruptive technologies. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends and loved ones and consider leaving us a five-star review. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006. We are imitated, but never intimidated. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Well, it's a pleasure to speak to you again, David. I really enjoyed speaking to you last year and learning more about your position uh, as the strategic leader for intelligence and security at NATO. So the first thing that I wanted to ask you was, uh, something quite significant has happened since the last time we spoke. So where were you as the Assistant Secretary General for Intelligence and Security at NATO when you heard that Russia had invaded the Ukraine. Yeah, well, thanks. Look, it's, it's great to be back with you and to continue the conversation we had, uh, I think now almost um, a year ago or even a little more than a year ago. 
I, look, I think life's changed for all of us, uh, and certainly anyone working in the national security sphere since the 24th of February last year. And I probably start by saying um, my life has changed, but my life has changed in pale comparison uh, to the lives of the Ukrainians that are suffering from all this. And I think just important to have that perspective uh, right up front. Look, for us in Brussels, I, th- I think if memory serves, the airstrike started about 4 a.m. our time. Uh, so I was at home, um, but had not been sleeping well uh, for quite some time before that because I think we felt our intelligence was really solid, certainly by the point that the war began, uh, that it was imminent. And I think I got into the office less than 30 minutes after that. Uh, we had some pretty intense meetings right away, as you can imagine, uh, for me to update the secretary general, the chair of the military committee, some other key officials, my my key leadership colleagues on things. And then we started our day. Uh, but I'm not going to pretend I, I still wasn't shocked. Uh, it's one thing to know it's coming, but it really is another to see missiles raining down on a city that I had only visited at that point just a few weeks before. In terms of my role, my responsibilities really haven't changed that much over the course of uh, Russia's expanded war in Ukraine. But I tell you, I probably have about three times as many engagements and briefings per week um, than I might have had if we were in um, in a, uh, let's say, a more routine situation where there wasn't a war um, on the European continent. I typically have a great number of meetings with the Secretary General, the Deputy Secretary General, and the Chair of the Military Committee over the course of a week, usually where I'm going to give an intelligence update. Usually, uh, I'll provide a briefing to the North Atlantic Council probably about every week, at least one, sometimes more than one uh, in a week. And we're constantly publishing intelligence products that go out to all 30 of the delegations, now also to the two invitees of Finland and Sweden. That includes current intelligence that we use for situational awareness several times a week and also longer-term intelligence to capture issues that are more uh, strategic in nature. My key partner on the military side at, at SHAPE, so that's the, the, the key military command within NATO, is the J-2, so the, the chief intelligence officer in military, who performs a very similar role uh, to mine, but at SHAPE headquarters in Mons, about an hour south of here. And also my deputy for intelligence, who currently is a German two-star, uh, is also flagged to the military side of the house. He briefs the military committee every morning. I may brief the, the military committee every other week myself, uh, usually as part of a path to a meeting of the North Atlantic Council on the same topic. So let's say they're going to discuss the activities of Russian forces stationed in Belarus. I'll provide the briefing to the military committee first, or, or my deputy will, with maybe a little bit more military-oriented detail, and then I'll give a more politically-oriented briefing to the diplomats in the North Atlantic Council later in that same week. And that's all part of making sure that the military committee has the right intelligence picture to give military advice to the North Atlantic Council. I also do a lot of informal work, so I'll communicate with the heads of the Allied Intelligence and Security Services as often as often as I can in writing and by telephone and by email. I also send them a lot of informal notes. I should say with the partners also, uh, but not with the same frequency or, or always to the same extent. Many of them, uh, allies and partners, have representatives um, to support that work and those engagements here in the headquarters environment. And I'll see them on a regular basis in formal committee meetings or in informal meetings. And then I also travel a lot to allied and partner nations as well, uh, including to Kiev just earlier this month again. That was my first trip back since the war started. And these are all very important visits uh, for us to hear from each other. So between headquarters, NATO, those services in these nations, to hear about what their priorities are, where their initiatives are taking them, and for me to give them feedback, for them to give me feedback as well. 
So I think I, I'd just wrap up on this one and tell you it's been a really challenging year in terms of the pace, but I've also uh, really appreciated the significantly increased appetite for intelligence within NATO and the critical importance to our work when it comes to allied decision-making. That's really fascinating, and there's a few things that I would like to pick up on there, but just before we get there, the head of the J2, is that a Brit? The former J2, uh, <laughs> when I first arrived, was a Norwegian general. The current is a Polish general. And that shows you the, the changes that can be made, uh, again, across the 30 allies. Uh, they will compete. Military officers will also compete, be nominated for that role, the same as I competed for my role. So uh, just here as at, as at shape, um, I'm the first American to have the role uh, here as the assistant secretary general. But my predecessor was, in fact, a German diplomat. And then we'll see. Uh, my successor uh, should arrive in December of this year. And, um, you know, the competition will determine uh, who the individual is and then correspondingly the nationality. And just to give our listeners a little insight into the workings of NATO, I know that French and English are the official languages, but just on an everyday sense, when you communicate with your Polish counterpart and German deputy, is it English that you're generally talking? Yeah, you know, um, my wife and I talk about this often and, and joke about it, I think, I think something I'd say, especially to an American audience, is that uh, you don't realize the privilege we have as Americans and English speakers until you live in, in, a, in a foreign country in which English is not actually one of the official languages. I mean, here in Belgium, it's French, Flemish, right, a dialect of, of uh, Dutch, German as well. Uh, there's some pockets of... Um, of native German speakers here in Belgium also. Um, and English may at some point in the future be one of the official languages to be the fourth. But the reality is that this is a country in which people primarily speak either either French or, or Dutch. Uh, in NATO, as you said, there, there are two official languages, English and French. Every NATO employee has a requirement uh, to have a, a very high level of proficiency in at least one of the two languages and then at least a beginner proficiency in the second. Uh, but I'd also tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm regularly involved in, in interviewing and evaluating people to take on posts here, and I, and I find a little bit embarrassed. I mean, I, I think I speak English fluently. Uh, I, I had a fluency in French. I've been working to gain back in the time I've been here. But I would tell you that, that I, I'm routinely coming into, into contact with people. Like my own executive assistant, I think, speaks five languages, and, and all of those fluently. So there are many, many languages spoken here within the headquarters from all of the nations. But for official business, uh, yes, back to where we started, it's both English and French. Mm -hmm. And I want to go on to unpack Ukraine a little bit more, but just when you were talking there about visiting Kiev for the first time since the war had broke out, could you just tell us what that experience was like for you? Well, you know, it is an active war zone. And so there's uh, a lot of work we have to do for the security procedures um, to come in and be safe and move around and, and do our business. A lot of that uh, enabled in cooperation uh, with many actors, including the Ukrainians themselves, in order to get that done. Um, it, it, it really kind of striking in, in a few ways. I think one thing i probably lead with is that you're very struck by how resilient uh, Ukraine is and the Ukrainians are, and their, the importance that they've attached to, um, to living their lives, to getting work done, 
um, to stay organized, stay together, and to continue to resist uh, this Russian invasion and then ultimately to prevail and win the war. And I really felt that. It's just universal, whether people are in the military or otherwise in the government or just out on the street. Uh, the other thing that was quite striking to me is, at least in Kiev, um, there's still normal traffic and businesses are open and people are moving around. I mean, certainly there are security restrictions and there aren't as many people as there were in Kiev before the war. Uh, but there is a lot of normal life. Normal life in a war um, and sadly in a city that's been attacked many times since February 24th of last year. But nonetheless, life's still going on. Um, but I, I guess my final point in, in answer to you would be that it is very striking when you see the um, the physical security measures that they've had to put in place, you know, to provide better protection, for example, around key government locations and some restrictions on movement there, sandbags um, on the street and windows, you know, obstacles so vehicles can't drive through, uh, and a whole lot more focus on um, being safe and, you know, and ready to move if you need to to a bomb shelter and that kind of thing. Uh, it's, it's sad, you know, that, that they have to live through that. Um, but as I say, um, fiercely um, willing to stand and fight for themselves. And you, you, you really do feel that uh, when you talk to them and, and you just walk around. So a uh, very, very useful visit, as you can imagine, then not just for the substance of the discussions uh, and the work we're able to accomplish together, but also for the opportunity to really come and experience it and, and see it, even if briefly. It was quite fascinating to me. When we spoke the other year, you were already very busy, but now if you're doing two or three times as much, it must be a very full-on and demanding position. So... I guess one of the things that I wanted to ask was, have you managed to extract yourself from the daily, you know, revolving rotation of events and meetings and so forth and just have a think about whether or not this has accelerated the existing trends and processes with regards to intelligence that we spoke about in the last interview? So I'm thinking about institutionalizing intelligence, um, really embedding it right throughout the, the, the institution that's been around since 1949. So is this in a way helping you do your job with regards to intelligence in NATO? Yeah, look, there's a lot in that. And I, and I think a few ways I tackle it in, um, in response to you. Um, I'll use some NATO language right up front and say that we are maintaining a 360-degree perspective uh, we can, in fact, do more than one thing at a time, and we're required to do more than one thing at a time. I'm often asked a related question, uh, which is, um, are you only focused on Russia's war in Ukraine? And, and the answer there is no, I am not only focused on Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, I put a great degree of attention to it and a whole lot of care, but the fact is um, I am required to ensure that the intelligence and security capabilities are really focused, as I said, in this 360-degree perspective, which means that we will look all around uh, NATO's area of responsibility. And that's uh, geographically defined to the Euro-Atlantic area. But as I think we discussed last time, it's also increasingly global and increasingly functional. Things like, on the latter, like cyber, uh, hybrid issues, space issues. Um, the next thing I would tell you is that my focus here at headquarters really is, is strategic in its nature. Um, the military commands at shape and the other components we have in this NATO intelligence enterprise are more at the operational to tactical level. Uh, my division and the, the team here at headquarters is really at the strategic to higher level operational level. 
and that that hasn't changed. Um, but having this 360-degree approach and the idea of an enterprise gets to the issue of resilience. Uh, I think what it accelerated, you know, you talk about building the institutional capacity, was being ready for this sort of issue, this sort of crisis, this war, um, and being resilient in the approach so that we can, in fact, do things at 360 degrees and take a look at more than one issue at the same time. I think we, we talk often about um, organizations and individuals rising to the moment, you know, and, and being capable. And that sounds like a great, a great thing. But I would tell you that I think collectively what you've seen NATO do is actually be ready for the moment itself. NATO had risen earlier than that particular moment on February 24th and was ready for it in multiple dimensions, not, not just my own in intelligence and security. Uh, I can tell you that, that intelligence sharing has certainly stepped up um, and did step up in the months preceding the invasion. And that was really formalized uh, during the NATO leaders meeting here in Brussels in March of 2022, particularly with regard to improving uh, shared situational awareness, especially on cyber. And that sharing of intelligence really is critical to the alliance. It's important for decision-making so that we can understand what's happening in all these regions of concern and all these issues. It's also really important, though, because the alliance obviously makes decisions and the alliance acts um, now at 30 soon to be 31, uh, and hopefully uh, soon also at 32. Uh, we do have 30 members of the alliance right now, and they have to achieve consensus. And, and I argue, and I think, I think pretty clear in practice, that intelligence is a key component of that decision-making process as they assess the environment and the situation. And the security has to be really good around all that. Um, it's very difficult to, to see where you could get better intelligence, make good decisions, um, but if you're incapable of protecting them properly from a security perspective, uh, you could lose the value of all of that effort. We've also really deepened cooperation uh, with Ukraine, with others, uh, with other partners, and we've, we've also deepened our cooperation even within the alliance on a whole broad range of issues. So um, I guess I'm kind of giving you a, a, a mixed answer. I feel like it was a the question. war has certainly accelerated <laughs> trends and processes, but I think what it's really shown is how valuable the things are that we do. It's made us realize how important they are and really focus on um, sustaining that performance. And I, th I think in that, it's, it's shown that, that we can stand the test and it's given us a good sense of where we need to go in the future. I remember reading, I think it was last month, the CIA director, Bill Burns, he said that intelligence sharing uh, amongst the NATO members is foundational to keep the alliance together for supporting Ukraine? I don't know the exact line, but I completely agree. And, and I think certainly in the U.S., and I think in most of the nations, um, intelligence and security tends to take a very, very prominent role. In fact, a leading one in national security decision-making. So having good intel sharing not just of data, but also of analytic views, the insights, uh, the meaning of what that intelligence information uh, tells us is really crucially important. And as I say, it's, it's not just about um, having the right warning in advance and having the right information to take the decision. Uh, but I'd also tell you that consensus can be enabled if you share enough of the intelligence information that, that the nations in capitals and here in Brussels at NATO headquarters can understand why the other nations say and think the things that they do. 
Um, and again, I talk a lot about intelligence, but I really do need to emphasize that, that it's the security is just as important as the intelligence is then uh, to ensure that you have the right trust in place and the right relationships, the confidence that you can share that kind of information and have the expertise and not worry about it being compromised. So I, I guess the, the next question is, uh, has this made the task of managing the relationships with 75 intelligence agencies more difficult or more easy or it's just, it's just another factor that has to be taken into account? I mean, you've already addressed that in your previous answers, but I just wondered if you had any additional thoughts on that. Yeah, I'd probably reiterate um, a point I made in the, other, in the other podcast, but I think worth, worth doing so. And I start by highlighting that NATO has nothing that the allies choose not to provide. And that includes uh, the personnel and the information that, that, that I rely on and the nations rely on that come from my division. So critically important that the nations have that trust and participate in these frameworks so that we have information and key expertise that fills out the NATO intelligence enterprise. We also need to ensure that we have the same intelligence-driven facts uh, that can go to all 30 nations at the same time drawing on the best of all that those nations can provide to NATO. Synthesized here within the division and elsewhere in that enterprise could be, at, again, at the military command at shape or even elsewhere, and in many cases by the nations themselves. And that draws on the information expertise of those 75 military and civilian intelligence and security services from those 30 nations. I think what you tend to see in the business, in, in the operation then of that, is really a, a virtuous cycle if I have confidence that I can trust and I can share the information and I know it's going to be used responsibly and I see that it, it's interpreted and informs a rich debate, decisions are taken and actions then consequently flow, it's important to me. I can see the value then of sharing my information. It's not going to be lost, compromised, it's going to be properly interpreted and it's going to achieve effect. So the purpose, the value is there to do that. Uh, so that really gets the return on investment. I mean, I think we tend to be really hard-nosed in the intelligence business about um, not just about the need for a high level of trust, but also that, that we, don't, we don't just do things to do things um, when we share information or we work together. We're doing it because we trust each other and we see that there's, that there's value. It's really important business and it takes a lot of work to get to that level of trust. So we need to make decisions about what we're going to do together and what we're going to share. And in many ways, the war has brought us all on the same page with regard to these challenges, and that's made part of the job easier. And what I mean to say there, I mean, just to be really clear, is there is a war in Europe. This is the largest war with the greatest effect of any war in Europe since World War II. That in itself uh, puts a very high imperative out into the system, into the intelligence and security services and elsewhere in national security enterprises. So you've got a high priority, very high level of demand. And then when you already have confidence that the system is responsible, capable, and valuable, um, you're increasingly willing to work. So the services trust us then to be objective and also to fairly represent their intelligence to decision makers within NATO. And again, this is what I'm talking about when I say we've got this virtuous cycle going. Just as a lead up to my next question, so... 
the relevance of NATO in the current era. So, you know, you mentioned there before the interview that your mother-in-law listened to our last interview and she really enjoyed and appreciated it and and got a better sense of what you were doing. So, so the people that listen to our podcast can be from people that are working the issues and intelligence agencies through to people like your mother-in-law. So just for the sake of the, the latter group, NATO founded 1949, 30 members, North Macedonia is the most recent member that has joined in 2020. And then this very day, which we're going to go on to discuss, Turkey has said that they're going to allow Finland to join. Um, So basically there's going to be 31 members and then Sweden might be next. So the purpose was tying North American security to uh, Western European security. But then when the Berlin Wall comes down, the Soviet Union uh, dissolves, there's some people saying, well, why, why do we need NATO anymore? It's kind of archaic. It's not really relevant anymore. Do you feel that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has conclusively answered this question, why do we still need NATO? Yeah, look, I'm pretty passionate. I'm a little biased, obviously, because I work here. Um, but I would say that, um, yes, I, I do think we still need NATO. And I think it's clear. I think it's been clear for many years, but especially now, NATO was really founded to ensure the collective security of its members and specifically the people that live in those countries uh, within those nations. And that's why I think at the core of it, NATO has always had an enduring purpose um, and really enduring value. Uh, If we talk about some of the history recently, look, I I mean, Russia's brutal war of aggression um, in Ukraine didn't start in 2022. It actually started in 2014 at least in Ukraine. It started 2008 in Georgia, even earlier in some other places. And I think we can see now that this was clearly part of a pattern of aggressive behavior by Russia against NATO allies and also against our partners. We've seen it include cyber attacks, assassinations, sabotage on allied soil, interference in elections, massive disinformation campaigns, and also the weaponization of commodity markets. Uh, Now you see that during this conflict. This is a pattern and strategic intent that was made really uh, painfully evident in the ultimatums that were issued by Moscow um, in the NATO-Russia Council, January, so just a month before this this invasion or expanded invasion. And I think we have to remember that Moscow's demands and the subsequent aggression, the war, are really driven by Putin's desire to wholly remake the European security order, to return to the Cold War days of spheres of influence and to abandon post-World War II norms regarding sovereignty and self-determination. So, I mean, a lot of that's political science language. So I just say, I mean, person to person, it's not just about Ukraine. It really is about what kind of world we all want to live in. There are rules, and, and the rules really do establish that nations of people have rights to be free, to make decisions for themselves, to be sovereign, to be safe within their own borders, uh, to be free from harm, and certainly free from... Uh, being threatened uh, in the way that we've seen here, not just um, with war at a high level, but if you look at the nature of it in this case, I mean, with with really horribly evident cases of murder and rape, torture, theft, kidnapping, and forced deportation. I mean, it's, it's hard to say, but I think these are things that people really need to see. Uh, that is one of the reasons why this alliance was founded and one of the reasons why this alliance, I think, will always have enduring value to ensure that that kind of violence uh, is never visited upon any of the members 
uh, of NATO. Um, look, I think Putin probably expected uh, a very easy fight when his forces invaded on the 24th, but I think history is going to record something very different. History is going to remember the courage of the Ukrainian people. History is also going to remember the determination and strength of the NATO alliance and the work that all of the allies uh, have done within the alliance and, and in other formats. Our relationships with our partners, and a year later, the NATO nation still stands strong in condemning the Russian invasion, and I think they're more unified and resolute than ever. Uh, you've heard our leaders say that, that we as an alliance and, and the nations are determined to stand with Ukraine's brave defenders for as long as it takes. We're also determined to protect every inch of NATO territory. And I think, you know, I just two, two, two points to end on. I think first is if Russia succeeds in destroying Ukraine, which is Putin's stated goal, that's going to be a lesson to all nations that strong nations can invade with impunity that might makes right. Uh, and I just go back to um, it is against international law, but I think fundamentally on a human level, we know that's not right. Uh, but I think the other thing I'd say is that Putin also tried to make clear before the war that he wanted less NATO. And with Finland now uh, being agreed by Turkey as the, the last uh, NATO member to ratify, to join the alliance, uh, and hopefully, as I say, Sweden soon, NATO, he doesn't have less NATO, he has more NATO now than he had before the war. And that shows, uh, given the sea change in the politics and popular views within Finland and Sweden, how profound um, of an effect the war has had on people all over the world but especially here in Europe and especially close to Russia. In case you're not familiar with NATO, to help you digest the content of this episode, here are eight facts about the Alliance. One, it was founded in 1949 with 12 founding members. Two, it has expanded to 31 members with Finland literally joining this month, April 2023, to be the 31st member. Three, it was formerly focused on Western Europe and North America, but has steadily grown to include the southeastern Mediterranean in the form of Greece and Turkey, the Balkans, and Central and Eastern European states who were formerly behind the Iron Curtain. 4. On eligibility, NATO says, NATO membership is open to, quote, any other European state in a position to further the principles of the treaty and to contribute to the security of the North Atlantic area. Quotes. Five, all decisions are taken by consensus. A NATO decision then is the expression of the collective will of all 31 member countries. Six, you will often hear of Article 5 with regards to NATO. This refers to the idea of collective defence, collective security, which is at the heart of the organisation. Put simply, an attack on one is an attack on all. It doesn't matter if that's the United States that's attacked or North Macedonia. 7. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union formed the Warsaw Pact along similar lines. An important difference would be that the club itself could be turned on you if you did not adhere to the dominant collective ideology. For example, the largest ever deployment of Warsaw Pact forces was during Operation Danube, which suppressed the liberalisation efforts of the 1968 Prague Spring through the use of half a million troops and 6,000 tanks. Eight, to join NATO, it normally takes a few years, but Finland's application went through extremely quickly. It's still not an overnight process, though. You need to meet five requirements. Your military must be under civilian control. You must respect the sovereignty of your neighbours. 
You must uphold democracy. You must be working towards compatibility with NATO forces. And you must be working towards a market economy. Finland met these military, economic and political requirements rather easily, but you still have to be invited by a consensus of existing NATO members. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Just on the the point of being biased, um, <laughs> maybe this is biased on my behalf as well. But you know, you're an American who's now living in Europe, and I'm a European who's now living in America, and it's very self evident to me how interlinked the collective security of both of those two spheres is. I was probably a little bit imprecise in my language describing NATO, so collective security, then the Cold War is a, a, you know, a significant factor, but then when the Cold War ends, some people don't see clearly how the Cold War can be disaggregated from NATO, but actually what you're saying is that the collective defence continues beyond any particular, you know, Cold War, post-Cold War, post-Russian invasion of Ukraine. So the, the collective security is the underlying thing. It wasn't the Cold War. Yeah, that's exactly right. You pr- probably put it a little clearer. Um, than I did. But I think, I mean, remember back to that time uh, at the end of the Cold War, there were a lot of um, really serious uh, political scientists who wrote things uh, like Fukuyama saying it was the end of history and we were in a, we were in a new era. Um, and I think, um, I mean, as strange as this is, if you take a look at um, the NATO strategic concept from a decade ago, there was hope that Russia could in fact uh, be a partner to the alliance, that there were opportunities to work with Russia, notwithstanding all of the other things uh, that I've, I've gone through here. You think about how much the world has changed between um, now and then, just in that last 10-year period. Um, it is a bit different. I mean, it's a little trite. You know, everybody says all the time, I mean, the world's constantly changing and the pace of change is accelerating and those things. And, and I, okay. Um, I don't know how far I tend to go in that and agree but I, but I would say that I think when you look at organizations like this, um, I am mindful of the point that, that I've made that you've helped me reinforce, you know, that the, the underlying issue was really about the collective security and doing things together as a group of like-minded nations. But I'd add two other things. I think the second really to emphasize are the values of the alliance as ensconced within the Washington Treaty, the founding treaty of the alliance really are about things that that are commonly held and subscribed to by the members and things that I tell you as an American, and I know that you as a European share, 
about freedom and self-determination and human rights, um, about territorial integrity, um, about the right to be free and to be safe within your country. I think these are all things that, that I think any reasonable person can have a very hard time disagreeing with and that protecting them then is really of the utmost importance. And then finally, I think, um, you know, you've got that about the values, but then there's this idea that, that look, I mean, if you had to form an alliance like this today with 30, 31, or 32 members because you were in crisis or a crisis was coming, could you do it? I don't know. I don't know that you could. I mean, here we're, it's almost, uh, for 49, it's almost 75 years of work to get to this level of institutional capability and sophistication of, of commonality and consensus. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort to build that and a pretty big vision. And I'm, I'm really proud when you look at the history that the founders of the alliance um, had that vision and were so committed to those values to bring the alliance together. I really do think it's, it's irreplaceable and incredibly valuable not just to the group as a whole, but to every single nation within it, including the United States. It seems to me that NATO is even more capable of repulsing Russian aggression than it was at any time during the Cold War. The alliance is much bigger. There's more countries. It's more capable. And in terms of strategic trajectory, Russia's definitely not as strong as it was when it was the Soviet Union during the Cold War. So it seems to me that, yeah, you mentioned this earlier, NATO has just got stronger because of this and Russia has not really moved forward. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I would, but just add a few add a few points. Um, look, let's leave aside the fact that the Russian military has been severely damaged and degraded um, by this war in Ukraine. NATO's prepared for the possibility uh, of, a, of a war um, of any kind on a range of scales uh, to be fought in the Euro-Atlantic area for a long time. I mean, it's, again, one of the central central purposes of the alliance. So it's not as if we just woke up on the 24th of February and realized that Russia was dangerous. Uh, we did predict the invasion, I think, very precisely, as, as even the public has seen by our intelligence. We shared a lot of those intelligence reports uh, in private and in public, certainly by the fall of 2021, and we really did accurately foresee that Russia was building up and, and likely was planning to invade Ukraine. And of course, you also saw the alliance um, and others work very hard to the very end to try to prevent that from happening. We met with Russia, we engaged with Russia, but they continued with their plans and they they invaded Ukraine anyway. So the reality is we've also been preparing uh, for that from a deterrence and defense perspective since at least 2014 when Russia first invaded uh, Ukraine. And And that's the reason why we've also increased our presence in the eastern part of the alliance why NATO allies are investing more in defense, and why collectively we've increased our readiness. We're also strengthening capabilities for the long term to deter and defend against all threats across all domains. You've seen us upgrade defense plans, putting more forces at higher levels of readiness, but there's still much more to do. Uh, Even as uh, there's a huge effort underway to support Ukraine in these critical months ahead, you're also seeing allies um, and the EU working in the space, too, to replenish ammunition stockpiles um, and other systems to strengthen deterrence and defense for the long term. In terms of Putin miscalculating or underestimating the strength of NATO, and I'm, I'm kind of bringing to a focus here, I don't believe that Putin or the Russians more broadly have ever underestimated NATO's physical force strength, you know, the military capabilities. But I think he clearly vastly underestimated the strength of transatlantic unity and alliance solidarity. I think the democracies of the world have unified in a way that I don't think he foresaw. 
think the West has proven uh, to be much stronger and much more in solidarity than he thought would be the case and probably hoped would be the case. I think we've also likely exceeded his expectations in terms of our capacity. We joined together as an alliance across the world to counter Russia. You see that particularly on sanctions. One of the things I think is remarkable in that area is how the coalition of states have enacted those sanctions, have been capable of watching how the invasion's been operating on Russia's side, adjusting in response, and there and through that maintaining pressure that exists in this space. But but I wrap up my answer to you by saying, you know, when we talk about um, the central purpose of the alliance, um, I mean, we have we have three primary missions, but when you take the collective defense, you know, we talk a lot about deterrence and defense. I think deterrence has worked, and it's obvious that defense is ready. And I say that, that deterrence works because, again, we've been very clear um, that, that we will not allow uh, one inch of NATO territory to be attacked, and there have not been attacks on NATO territory. And I think that's in no small part due to um, the, the excellent diplomacy and the great military capability that the alliance has within it and that the states have uh, within that alliance. And what role is NATO intelligence playing in the Ukraine conflict? Well, uh, we talked a bit about the role of intelligence um, in the run-up to and since Russia's invasion. And I think that really is a new chapter, which you see here in the use of intelligence in international affairs. And in particular, what I'm talking about here is, is certain allies being willing to declassify information and assessments to support warnings of imminent Russian aggression. I mean, you saw that, I think, tremendously from the U.S., also from the U.K. Uh, we and media organizations also, uh, when I say we, I mean uh, services also, draw on an open source intelligence to make warnings more compelling to the public and also to explain uh, to governments as well uh, what we're seeing and what we think it means. And through all that, I think we made it possible to preempt some Russian attempts at denial and deception, um, to frankly preempt some lies, to poke holes in some lies by giving us the opportunity to rebut and discredit those arguments before Moscow could even make some of them. More generally within NATO, I, I think uh, during my tenure here, we've really um, built the role of intelligence and security as we discussed on the last podcast, I'm only the second ASG in the role. Um, I've been here since December of 2019. My term will end in December of this year. My predecessor was here from 2016 when the division was founded, his post was created, and the, the enterprise concept was brought together. And he was here for three years. Uh, and, and as I say, I really do feel like um, the capability is just, it's just impressive when you think about um, the diversity and strength of those 75 services working concert with each other. Um, and enabling that enterprise, that NATO intelligence enterprise and the security capabilities to do what it needs to do. And that's all been really clarified um, by the war. You know, as I say more to to the American audience, but I think this will resonate with others too. Um, I feel like my job is a combination of a bit of what the DNI does, the Director of National Intelligence, a bit of what the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security does at the Pentagon, and a bit of what the Joint Staff J2 does in terms of managing at the strategic level interactions with uh, the broader interagency, we say in the U.S., with the White House and with the other departments and agencies, but also with the military and then also with, um, with other nations. Um, so I see my role as one that's active and participating, providing intelligence to decision makers, but also providing advice informed by allied intelligence uh, 
and that's not just me. Again, I've got a lot of really talented people I work with here, great, great partners in the nations in those services and elsewhere, uh, and also out into the partner nations that we work with. And I just ask you to keep in mind that, that this joint intelligence and security division that I lead is also joint military and civilian. It's the only one designed that way at NATO. We do draw from military and civilian intelligence. So, I mean, if you have more of a political question, it's probably more appropriate for civilian service. But if you have a military question, probably more appropriate for a military intel service. But we do look across the board. Uh, and my division provides that consolidated support, as I said in the beginning, to both uh, the North Atlantic Council and the military committee. So I see my job, our job collectively, to help synchronize that effort by bringing the best of intelligence to bear at or before the moment of decision. It doesn't matter which nation the information or the expertise comes from. It doesn't matter which service. It doesn't matter whether it's military or civilian. We just go to get the best intelligence that those 30 nations and 75 or so services can provide so that the very best decisions can be, can be taken here and then actions uh, can flow from those. I'm trying to formulate a way to help our listeners understand uh, intelligence at NATO compared to its constituent members. So its constituent members have intelligence agencies, they gather intelligence. Sometimes they will give it just directly to Ukraine, but other times it will flow through NATO or intelligence at NATO is, re- is responsible for specifically consuming and uh, disseminating na- intelligence on behalf of the alliance specifically. So imagine that every, every intelligence agency prints money uh, and money is the currency. Uh, and NATO doesn't print its own money. Currency from other countries passes through and then sometimes that is passed on to Ukraine. Help me just understand the, the production of intelligence and, and the role that NATO plays in its dissemination. Yeah, so I think um, you got a good sense of the challenge. Uh, in the way that you're <laughs> okay. trying, to, trying so, to pose the that's question. That's why it's a difficult answer because it's a difficult question. Yeah, okay. and, and as I said, you know, in the, the last time you and I spoke, um, again, the, the, the DNI, you know, with 19 different uh, components has some of the same uh, issues. Even just within one country, it can be challenging. Again, when you look at the size, um, not just the numbers, but again, the size of the system that the U.S. has, it can also be very challenging to do that enterprise management and do and do a lot of that synchronization of views and things and actions. Um, so a couple of things. I just split your question apart, and I'd say there's there's one issue, which is what do nations actually do when we come together? And then the other you're asking about is how are we working with Ukraine? Um, nations will work within NATO uh, as part of that alliance framework, in order to ensure that the alliance, again, can take decisions and act. And those are, there's a set of defined uh, operations, capabilities, needs, all those things that we have. And, and, and I do help set uh, strategic intelligence requirements on a regular basis. And that's then what we use to communicate with the nations to say, you know, we have a list of certain things we need. Please take a look. And if you can help satisfy these, um, please choose to do so either with information um, or also with, with personnel in order to address those. Um, and a lot of that, as I said, remember, is not just to answer specific questions, but it's also to help make decisions and to take action. 
So we will draw on intelligence and security capabilities to better understand issues that we need to deal with, like cyber threats or uh, terrorism, um, and also to do some things that are maybe more positive and a little less threat-specific first, like to provide the defense capability building and capacity building to help with political institutional capacity building, you know, to help governments in places either within the alliance or outside the alliance um, benefit from NATO's assistance and expertise. And some of that is in fact helped by, if not also within a lane of security cooperation. So, so we use it for our own work um, just as much as we use it for um, let's say, pure intelligence business about briefing on something or writing on something to explain a problem. Mm-hmm. On, on the Ukraine side, you know, NATO has had a longstanding partnership uh, with Ukraine, and we cooperate with Ukraine in, in many dimensions, and the security sphere is, is one of those. Um, nations in, in this alliance are completely sovereign. They participate within the alliance. They participate in things outside the alliance, some have similar purpose, like their cooperation with Ukraine. They can do so as NATO members, and they can do so as individual states. Um, and you do see a lot of that go on here. So I just I can't go too far into it, but I just say you know part of part of my role here is to try to work with the nations to really understand um, who are you working with, what are you doing, you know what are you providing, um, how can I help, what's the role here, how do I assist, because I also I'm engaging with the Ukrainians. I mean, as I said, I've, I've traveled to Ukraine now a few times and just uh, most recently, even earlier this month, and I talk to my colleagues and counterparts there um, really frequently. So it's, it's really important for us to talk and, and, and be on the same page and understand what's happening. But I think people should just understand that, that the nations can choose what they do through the alliance and what they can do outside on their own. I spent three years at Joint Headquarters Rheindalen, GHQ, in Germany near the Dutch border in the former British zone of occupation. Rheindalen was formerly the headquarters for the British Army of the Rhine, RAF Germany, NATO's Northern Army Group and NATO's 2nd Allied Tactical Air Force, key planks of forward defence in Germany. Frieden und Freiheit für Europa. While there I ran in the Berlin and Vienna marathons, ran wild on the command library and learned now extremely rusty German, Frieden und Freiheit für Europa. While there, this was 2001 to 2004, I worked on a photographic intelligence section, the last trickle of RAF personnel in Germany. One day I walked out of the mess and elements of a British Army armoured division were standing around their vehicles in the car park. When they spotted me in my Air Force uniform, they collectively, around 30 of them, started humming the Dam Busters tune from the movie. Da, 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 da. They were doing arm movements, all of the motions, the full nine yards. Frieden und Freiheit für Europa. I had a season ticket for the German soccer team, Borussia Mönchengladbach. I lived in barracks behind the American PX. And while I was there, 9-11 and the Iraq war went down. Frieden und Freiheit für Europa. This whole time in the morning when I awoke, occasionally hungover, or when I was going to bed, occasionally drunk, I would think about mull over and obsess about a sticker on a wardrobe I inherited in my room. It said, 
NATO, freedom and freiheit for Europa. The weight of history would fill my dreams and haunt my days. In the wee small hours if I awoke, I'd hear that soft murmur of a continent littered with skulls. Those laboured words, pregnant with expectation, guide me, guide us to those broad, sunlit uplands. Frieden und Freiheit für Europa. Peace and freedom for Europe, we are there. Well, almost. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. This is really, really fascinating to me. Um, So there's a lot that we could unpack in terms of evolutions and intelligence more generally, but I feel like that could be an entire podcast in and of itself. So just briefly, because on SpyCast, our listeners and us have been going on a journey to try to get our heads around artificial intelligence. So just briefly, is there... Is this something that you're already thinking about? How do we how do we start dealing with this? And I know it's a big question, and I know that it's a multi-year, probably multi-ASG solution, but I just wondered if you just had a brief set of thoughts on AI and, and NATO intelligence. Yeah, just a couple brief answers then. I mean, I've been involved in experimentation with artificial intelligence now for several years, even before I came here. Uh, both within intelligence and security and outside intelligence and security as we look just at its utility to help uh, national security decision-making and help better make sense of, of big quantities of data. I've always been a big proponent for it because I think increasingly the challenge that we have is that there is so much useful information that you really need some sort of assistance to help you curate and organize and query that data almost to remind you of information that you already have so that you can gain the benefit maybe of a pattern that exists that you can't detect but the computer can help you find and looking to the future to actually better forecast a bit uh, what a range of potential outcomes are and give you some sense of the probability. Um, I, I would also tell you, I think artificial intelligence has got great promise in intelligence and security to help us um, better focus human beings on the things that they must make the final decision on. So let's have the artificial intelligence, let's have the, let's have the computer do the work for us to sift through these huge quantities of data and then flag anomalies or flag things for us that require further attention. 
I think the challenge we have now, we've had now for probably over a decade, is that we used to talk about trying to find a needle in the haystack. But I think the problem now is the entire haystack is made of needles. And what you're trying to do is find the right bunch of those needles in there to answer your question. So you really do need some, you need some automated tools in order to better do that. Um, final thing I'd say this in response to you, though, is because I was an analyst first, too in the business. And sometimes what I just said scares analysts silly because what they hear me saying is, so, so in that future, you just need Skynet, so to speak, to tell you what the answer is. You don't need me at all. And which I say, no, actually. I've, I've already said you need a human to make the final decision, not the computer. So you need the human actually use a human person's brain, instinct, lived experience, uh, with the cueing from or with the assistance of the artificial intelligence. And I think you also need the human to understand what questions are the most important questions to ask. I mean, you think about Spock on the uh, Starship Enterprise. Uh, he had a lot of things in his head, but I think his real strength was that he could ask the computer the best question to get the computer to give him uh, the answer to the problem at hand. So I think there'll always be that need for the analyst as Spock, if you will, in that dynamic to use the artificial intelligence as an instrument, as a lever uh, to better go through that, to better leverage that that really high quantity of, of highly valuable potential information to turn that into knowledge. Mm. For uh, intelligence and security at NATO, like how are they onboarded or dealt with or forecasted? So, you know, the, the, the big trends quantum, AI, the metaverse, all of these types of things. Is that really something that would be done more at the level of individual nation states and then NATO would, through the, the flow of personnel, it would be gradually onboarded into NATO? Or do you, do you have a separate futures unit or something like this? I'm, I'm just trying to get a sense of how users are dealing with the, the changes in intelligence more generally. Yeah, so that's evolved quite a bit. Um, even just in the time I've been here, we do have a staff that takes a look at emerging and disruptive technologies. Um, I think really mostly divided between three entities here, at least in the headquarters environment. One is NATO does have a, a chief scientist, um, and I think he has uh, the lead responsibility really for that from a science and technology perspective to help understand those technologies currently and to do some of the long-range forecasts, the horizon scanning. I have a counterpart, ASG, uh, David Van Whale, who's the ASG for Emerging Security Challenges, who has the lead for the policy aspects of emerging and disruptive technologies. And then there's me, uh, really for, in NATO jargon, for the red picture, you know, for the intelligence-driven perspective on that. And I am, as, as you've said, drawing on not just some expertise that I have here uh, and other expertise maybe in that in that uh, emerging security challenges division or in the office of the chief scientist, uh, but also, again, back in the nation's capitals, back in those services, and by extension within their ministries, especially ministries of defense and, and so on. Uh, but I also say it's accelerating because um, NATO has opened a new capability after the summit last year called DIANA, and that's essentially a, um, an innovation accelerator uh, for the alliance. Uh, the headquarters for Diana, in fact, was just opened today, I believe, in London and uh, is intended to bring together innovation nodes from nations that choose to contribute, which is now a great, great number of them in the alliance, 
capabilities like we have in the U.S. in IARPA or in DARPA, for example, in Silicon Valley and the private sector and in some other places. Many nations have similar um, equivalent capabilities that they can choose, and I say many have chosen to align with this so that we can have a collective effort focused on innovation, on information exchange, improved interoperability, and more importantly, and you get it again in the title, this acceleration of the innovation together. And relatedly, uh, they're also willing to put real money behind it. So leaders also agreed uh, last year to create an innovation fund that will be managed um, to put some targeted investments from an alliance perspective against some of those um, promising emerging technologies to deal with some of the most challenging problems that the alliance faces as a whole. And in doing so, then, all of the NATO members will benefit from that innovation uh, and, the, and the technological solution. Mm. And just as we move on to the final part of the interview, um, the it's quite interesting that we speak today because Diana has been uh, opened and also because Turkey has said that they will ratify Finland joining NATO. So I just thought to myself, you know, it's came a long way, right? From 1949, 12 members to 2023, we're going to have 31 members. This is another 1,300 miles of border with uh, Russia. So I know that this could be a huge, again, a podcast in and of itself, but I'm assuming that this is going to be the topic or already has been the topic of numerous meetings that you have been involved in as well. Yeah, look, I mean, when I arrived in uh, December of 2019, we had 28 allies. And I'm hopeful that by the time I leave, uh, certainly I'm even more hopeful that before the summit, we'll have 32 members. We've also really drawn the partners um, much more uh, closely to us, uh, certainly since um, since the war started in uh, February of last year. Um, but I think you should see us say things and take some real steps uh, towards the partners that, that either have not uh, chosen yet to be members or um, or may not even in the future choose to be members because that's all, again, part of this, um, the broader alliance framework and the, and the partnership framework. Like, I think it's a great thing that the Turkish Grand National Assembly uh, voted yesterday to ratify Finland's membership to NATO. And that does mean that all 30 NATO allies have now ratified Finland's succession protocol. And uh, I'm hopeful that Finland will then formally join the alliance in the coming days. And I have to say in the coming days, because there's some, there's some administrative and bureaucratic things that have to happen with uh, diplomatic business, like the deposit of the ratification documentation and so on. Uh, but this is really exciting because their mm-hmm. Finnish membership does make uh, Finland safer and NATO stronger. And I'd also say since you raised uh, 49 and the alliance coming together, this is the fastest accession process in NATO's modern history. This normally takes years. And if you think about it, it was just last year after the war started that Finland and Sweden uh, changed longstanding uh, national policies of uh, of neutrality. They had relationships with us and partnerships with us, but but longstanding policies of neutrality and decided to to join the alliance. And I think it was um, the Finnish president, uh, Niisto, who actually made the statement that it was Putin that did this. It was Putin that provoked that sea change in their views. So uh, you mentioned the border. I'm, I'll just reiterate the statement I made earlier. I mean, Putin wanted less NATO near him. The fact is he gets more NATO. And it also demonstrates, sends a very clear message to Putin that NATO's door remains open. 
and that nations can, in fact, go through that door and join the alliance, that it is the alliance itself and the nations within it, uh, the nations that wish to join it, that make the decision, as is their rights under international law. It is, it is not the right or authority of any other nation to determine for them what security arrangements they have for themselves and what alliances they join. So very proud to see Finland uh, join the alliance and, and, again, hopeful that I'll be equally proud to celebrate uh, Sweden's joining the alliance very soon. Mm-hmm. And is there a question that you are never asked that you really think that you should have been asked? Because, <laughs> you know, when I've done interviews before, there's, al- there's always some blind spot that people don't get. So it could be academics, journalists, practitioners. Or, uh, do you ever have an interview and you're just like, geez, I just wish they would ask this question, which is really important and everybody needs to know it, but nobody is going to ask it. If that is the case, this is an opportunity for me to ask it. Well, I think, look, I mean, we've already talked about, um, you know, usually what I say here is I just want to take a moment to talk about how grateful I am to be able to serve here and how proud I am to be an American serving here. Because uh, it, it, it really has been quite a time uh, this last three, three and a half years to be here to see all this. I'm, I'm, I'm sad my time comes to an end here uh, later this fall. Uh, but certainly very, very proud of what I've seen here, uh, the part I've been able to play, um, the pride I have in the team, the way the team has come together. Um, I think, you know, I go back to the educational mission, um, you know, that I know you have both at the museum, you know, and what you're trying to do through the podcast. And I just, um, a question you kind of got to last time that you asked this time is, you know, how did you get here and, you know, what advice Mm -hmm. would you have? So I'd probably just say to people, you know, take advantage of the opportunities you have, not just to serve within your national system. You know, if you're American, I mean, certainly the intelligence community is tremendous, lots of opportunity there. And I, and I would encourage you to serve in some way the nation. And I think the intelligence community is a, is a great place to serve. And at the same time, really think about going out into the world um, and broadening your horizons, your personal and professional horizons by doing so. I mean, I'll be 52 in May, this is the first time I have lived overseas. I mean, I've worked, deployed, you know, plenty of interactions with people around the world, but this is the first time in my whole life I have lived overseas. And I, I, I'm happy for the time I've had here, but I do regret that I didn't do it earlier because I just think it's been a huge opening of my mind, my way of thinking, my life experience. You know, as I said earlier, it makes me appreciate a whole lot more um, what it means to be an American in terms of who we are and what we stand for and what we mean and what we can do. It also makes me a whole lot more mindful of the privilege that I enjoy as an American. Um, but it's also really helped me better understand a whole lot of people in a whole lot of different nations and places and ways of life. And uh, I think in, in ways that are really important, not just to me as a person, but, but even to uh, the way that I approach my work and the way I think about what's important. So... Uh, you didn't ask it, but I just say to people, I mean, um, really, really think about where you want to take your career. And if you have an opportunity to work overseas, live overseas and, and work in an international format, do it. Do it frequently and try to do it early. It's, it's so funny that you bring that one up because literally my final question was, if you had advice for someone in the USIC who wanted to work in a multilateral environment, what, what would you say to them uh, somewhere like NATO? But you've just answered it. 
And just as we close out, do you know what's happening for you next, David? Is that yet to be determined? Uh, it's yet to be determined. I mean, I'm a career uh, senior executive, career official uh, within the Department of Defense and within the intelligence community. So I'm, I'm talking to the government to return. Um, I'm also at a point in my career, though, where I have more than 30 years of service. So um, I think what I'm supposed to say here is I'm keeping an open mind and I'm open to all offers. Uh, but I, but I do think I have um, still some some time left to serve, and some opportunities there. So I'm I'm hopeful to come back to the government. But I'm also mindful that um, I've been privileged with a great number of roles over the course of my career. I've been senior and senior roles for a very long time, and and it may be that uh, that this is where I've made my final mark. And and if so, I'll I'll, I'll move on to something in the private sector. But um, but it's really uh, put me in a place to be very reflective on, um, again, the, the privilege that all the service I've, I've enjoyed has given me, all the things it's prepared me for. And I'm, while I don't know where I'm going to go, I'm excited about the future uh, and about returning. Well, I wish you the very best of luck and stay in touch. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for your service and for your expertise. Yeah, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on next week's show. The hotel um, had always been involved with um, intelligence service because it was, uh, the hotel's very discreet. Because of its location, where we are off uh, Victoria Street in in Westminster, um, because we're we're off there as as set aside, um, it's uh, almost hiding in plain sight, if you like, for want of a better word, where a lot of um, organisations, and perhaps even so today, um, who knows, are using the hotel as, um, as cover for something else. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL Spycast. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, and my podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Afu Anokwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester and Jen Ivan. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum.